This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. It was the best time of our lives. Getting money was all we ever did. Hello and welcome to the Carousel Podcast. Today I have with me Lomez. Fantastic guest. Hi, Lomez. Hello, Isaac. How are you, man? Thanks for having me on. I'm good. I'm good. You'll see that I have a new uh, video set up here after yeah. much criticism from many people and and uh, bitches on Twitter calling me <laughs> mid. <laughs> Looking good, so, man. Very, very okay. professional, classy yeah. setup there. Right, right. And I have beautiful mountains outside here on my, on uh-huh. my window. But nice. um, anyway, so, oh, sorry. What, what mountains are those? It's the San Gabriel's. Is there snow up there? No, not no. Snow is all gone. There was some for a little bit, but uh-huh. I don't see an inch of snow now. Okay. Um. Oh, maybe there's a little bit. So, like the San Gabriels have two phases. There's the one closest to Pasadena, and then there's the like ones behind those, and the ones behind those are really tall. The, these ones are a little are, are a little shorter. But um, gotcha. Yeah, Pasadena is like the furthest northeast part of LA. It's like tucked right in the mountains because LA is like a basin. It's just like a imprisoned right. little like basin to the sea. Anyway, right. so Lomez, uh, many of you will be familiar with a, a huge name in our scene, um, is the publisher of Passage Press, which just released a beautifully designed and printed version of Curtis Yarvin's Unqualified Reservations. Um, I've been lucky enough to to get my hands on one of those. It's absolutely gorgeous. And some other very exciting projects coming up. We can talk about those towards the end. Um, and also, Passage Prize was birthed from his, sorry, Passage Press was birthed from his um, project Passage Prize, which is a literary and arts competition for interesting thinkers, outside of the box thinkers, people who want to create real beauty in the world and who have run up against walls of um, control and censorship. Yeah, that's right. That's a good um, summary of at least the uh, initial motivation to start on on that project. Um which I started in fall of 2021. So um, we're a little over, or about a year and a half into this project now. Um, And that was started kind of on a whim. Um, I had read an interview with Michael Anton in which he was talking about the need for right-wing patronage networks and in particular was lamenting the absence of any kind of meaningful 
even right-wing sort of coded literature in the vein of someone like Tom Wolfe. And um, that got me started on this, on this Twitter thread talking about the need for patronage networks and just kind of trying to explain to this audience, this Twitter audience, how much investment the left does into culture at its most nascent stages. You know, all of these performing arts centers throughout the country, in every city, there's a theater or there's a, um, you know, some kind of art gallery. There are, uh, Isaac, you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're so like stony silent for listening <laughs> no, to this I'm monologue. I, I was wondering if my internet <laughs> went out. So anyway, uh, yeah. So all these patronage networks, you know, it it in higher ed, um, how they funnel young aspiring artists uh, through academia, through grad schools, basically paying their way in the early stages of their career while they work on their craft and cultivate their craft, and all this has a particular and, and certainly over the last like 20 years um but it's probably been going on longer than that there's a selection effect the kind of people who are invited uh to participate um in these um in this cultivation of talent and these artistic networks are tend to be on the left or have leftist sensibilities and people who have more right-wing sensibilities are at some stage in this process filtered out so how do we start our own kind of patronage networks? And that gave rise to this passage prize where I decided I would try to give out money to anybody who was interested in uh, participating um, and having their work judged. We would give out, it started as $10,000 and that quickly ballooned to 20,000 as we got some money from people on Twitter just sending us crypto payments. And so that's the uh, that's the early story for Passage. I'm not sure if, sorry, I, I need to cut this off. I'm going to take a breath here. Um, I need to press pause. There's oh. like Little Mermaid going on behind me. That's like so <laughs> distracting. So I have to I have to go get that turned down. So just give me a sec here. This okay, is like no worries. unbearable. No worries. Go, um, go turn off Little Mermaid. Yeah, so I, I'm just going to talk here because, as all of you know, I absolutely hate editing of any kind. So uh, <clears throat> Lomez is like one of the bigger anons that is around, just so you guys know. And he's back. That was fast. That was very fast. Oh, my God. I know how it is. I know how it is with the Can you edit noise, that out? With the children. Can you, what's that? Uh, yeah, no, I get it. Dude, you know how it goes. I'm so distracted. I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't think straight. No, it's all right. So, it's um, sorry. I just was going on and on and I was trying to, no, like... it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. You were just talking about how you initially launched this thing. I mean, passage prize has genuinely become a sensation. I mean, it's really like I, in the landscape, as far as I see it. And, you know, you and I have worked together on, on things before, but, uh, it's the only functioning, it's like the only functioning project. The rest of these projects are pretty, uh, you know, like uh, bare bones and they're kind of limping along. Whereas mm -hmm. Passage Prize feels like it's a really legitimate thing. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, sorry. Well, so that, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there are, 
there are some other things going on in this space that have potential to grow and be meaningful. And there are some other publishing houses, frankly, that are doing a great job. You know, Mystery Grove comes to mind. That guy is selling tons of books. He's he's basically sort of reviving or not even reviving, but really creating his own kind of, uh, you know, 21st century canon for yeah. um, like meaningful nonfiction. He's bringing to people's attention uh, writers who otherwise, I don't think, I mean, Younger's an exception there, but uh, uh, like Kemp or um, Wrangel, you know, the um, uh, the Russian general, I don't think people would have heard of these guys if not for Mystery Grove. So he's doing something very meaningful too, I think. But one one advantage that Passage has is that it the nature of this prize is that it's communal. There's sort of this communal participation. So everyone is sort of involved in it or can be in some way or have some small stake in it. And I think that's obviously kind of exciting to people that to feel like they have some ownership over over what this culture is looking like and they can kind of press on it in their own way. They have access to it. Um, so, you know, and like Man's World too has a similar thing where the way that Rye Nationalist kind of invites in writers from all over this broad spectrum um, gives it this sort of inclusive quality that I think is uh, appealing. Inclusion, diversity and inclusion <laughs> is really important for inclusion. Our yeah, need to sure. be Without the other belonging, two. it's yeah, belonging. Right. Do you know they've changed DEI? Now it's diversity, inclusion and belonging. It's DIB. Oh, that's important. I'm it's, glad we I'm glad we got work. that last. Uh, yeah. Now, how much do you think was spent on getting that just right? Like, <laughs> like how many marketing firms were hired by? You know, I wonder what the first company was that made that change. It was probably a like consulting the university. Firm. A consulting it, firm. Yeah, I'm sure it was came from some consultant. Well, probably it was because they were like DEI says die die yeah you know which is right. like yeah of course they can't avoid that the truth right. that, that comes out you know even if they try and fix it up right so but, mckinsey uh, allocates another million dollars to like workshop yeah and uh, they gotta redo all the paper they gotta yeah. redo yeah 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 replacements for yeah. for inclusion okay also belonging it's just like the the, the language mm -hmm. just gets more and more <laughs> like like california therapist you know yes. it's like <laughs> yeah well that's what it is yeah it is this kind of new agey therapeutic um ethos to all of this stuff for sure so <clears throat> before passage and i want to read a little short part of an essay on the website of passage but before that were you as big before passage like how many followers did you have before passage versus after or was it was about the same and this was yeah. just using your equity using your brand equity of lomez to to make it happen I remember pretty distinctly right before um, launching Passage Prize, reaching the 20,000 follower mark. And it was starting to build pretty fast. You know, once you hit a certain threshold, um, it starts to build pretty fast. But then uh, right after I launched the prize, I, you know, you can see in the chart like the exact day where my account gets throttled. And it just flatlines for a full year really? until Musk takes over. And you can see then the exact inflection point like to the day where it goes back to its trajectory that it had been on before. 
So there was, it was very obvious. And what happened was specifically uh, after I announced the winners, one of the pictures in the third place prize contained in the background image, there was like a Sonnenrad. And this was flagged by, there's this guy who works for the uh, German government. Oh yeah. yeah. Funded by the German government. And he's this little weasel who goes around like his whole life. I mean, the, this guy's entire life, imagine how sad and pathetic you must be as a human. And he goes around this little gnat, this little rat of a human, this pest. And he goes around and he tries to find in various people's tweets, like little things that he can report back to his masters, you know, at Twitter safety and trust team to get their accounts throttled. So this guy flagged this tweet that had the Sonnenrad and had his little like followers, uh, you know, mass report it. And I got this notification shortly thereafter from the German government that I was in violation of some hate speech law yeah. uh, by the German government. And then sure enough, I mean, the, there was nothing that I did that violated any actual Twitter rule. But that was the thing that that triggered this flatlining of, of my follower account. Um, and then shortly thereafter, this guy released this like heat map, this heat graph. Yeah, and you were... Well, so th what's funny about this is, yes, I was on it. And my account is like right centered, like right in the middle. Well, tacos is on the right in the middle. Ta um, yeah, thought... so tacos is in there, you know, sailor, all yeah. every single person who you would want to follow at some point. I mean, who's yeah. saying anything of interest is on this thing somewhere, including the most um, sort of benign and milk toast like IDW style. Like right, right. Anybody right. who's not just like a, you know, commie. Is well, on I mean, this... Delicious Tacos is a ridiculous yeah, person. Right. To have on exactly. Like, but, but so you know, not... he yeah, follows yeah. some of us. So he's right. a bad guy. So yeah. um, so anyway, I'm, I'm in the center of this graph and I ended up using that graph in my fundraising deck for oh, Passage Press right, to demonstrate sorry. to investors like, yeah. look, I'm in the center of this social graph and yeah, I can use great. this to my advantage. So thank you, Travis Brown, your your graph and your uh, hard work in putting that together allowed me to raise enough money um, to actually kickstart this project and uh, fund it for the foreseeable future. So, so I owe you one. I owe you a drink yeah. uh, the next time I see you. I appreciate that. That's how you turn a negative into a positive. That's right. Yeah. I'm all about the positives here. No black pilling. Right. Totally. Well, you're a, a great example of, of not being black pilled. So, all right. So, so that year, I mean, how did, okay. So that's why, is that why, because that's when you got flattened when Travis Brown or whatever, found you and you were just throttled for for a year is that is that what yeah that was? was that was the year when passage was running but by then you know i had enough followers that starting this contest there it was reaching out to enough places um that i could still get the audience i needed to get to and get to writers and get to people who were interested in the book and then i had these great judges so yeah. i had yarvin judging i had um uh, Benjamin Braddock. I had zero HP Lovecraft. Um, and I had, uh, 
uh, Gio Panichetti doing the, the art. And all of these guys have their own sort of audience and networks. And that's, again, that's goes back to this thing I was talking about, about like sort of having this sort of communal effort um, that it draws in, oh, these people, you know, it's not just one person relying on their own, their own social graph. You have a bunch of people doing it instead, um, including the people who were submitting to the contest who wanted to let people know about their work and, and eventually wanted to let people know that they had won and they were excited about this and that drew in more attention. And so, yeah, so, you know, um, there, it, it got a lot of attention. It was something I think people had been waiting for. And I was just there to kind of take this energy that was just kind of latent. It was just sitting there. It was just waiting for someone to, to sort of do something with it. And this was just one thing that was sort of obvious and easy for me, or at least conceptually easy for me to, to execute on. And so I thought, why not? Might as well, why not as well do this? Totally. So, okay. So um, before that though, getting to the 20 K you date back to as an anon, you date back like a while, right? You go back to where you, so, so how did you become Lomas originally? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, uh, I'm on my third account. They've all been some version of Lomez. Um, my, uh, I mean, I've been posting in this Twitter space since about 2015-ish. Um, so pre-Trump. And, uh, you know, a lot of the same people that I follow now who are like bigger accounts, you know, either tens of thousands of people or um, they were around then. So I remember a lot of these people and they were sort of smaller at the time. But I was, I was, so there's like a lot of different pathways into this. A lot of people came from Salo Forum, which is Nicolo Saldo's like forum. I wasn't on that. Um, I I knew a lot of people from Steve Saylor's comment section on his old iSteve blog. And a lot of the people who I ended up following on Twitter initially were people I sort of recognized or were sort of familiar to me from from that comment section. And and it was the kind of people that Sailor would link to. Um, And so I had, I had some uh, like a head start there. I actually ran a blog. I'm not going to talk about it too much because there's potentially doxable material there, but I actually ran a blog at one point that, well, I've already said too much. So anyway, I'll just stop (laughs) there, but suffice to say that I was writing stuff in this space for a while yeah. And then so the transition into being a Twitter anon was was fairly straightforward. And then things really started to take off after the Trump election um, and like heading into COVID, um, where a lot of like right wing accounts started to become more prominent. And yeah, things just kind of grew from there, I guess. Nice. Did, were you ever Manosphere? Were you ever like in the so you were a sailor? You came so, to a sailor. Sort of, but Sailor would write and cross post uh, Hartiste stuff all the time. So like Royce or Hartiste, his stuff would, like Sailor would always talk about him. And those comment sections had a ton of overlap. And I would, and I would like read that blog on occasion as well. And I remember Sailor always used to say, if like TV executives were like smart, 
or like, you know, HBO executives were smart. They would get Hartis to like write a show for them. This is yeah. like a slam dunk. And it would be a perfect counterpoint to like, you know, sex in the city, girl yeah. style um, TV, which was like, you know, prestige, uh, high comedy TV of the time. A Hartis show that shows like the male version of that would have been an obvious, like great uh, counterpoint to that. And Sailor was, of course, right about that. And that was an initial inkling that there was some asymmetry in how the culture was determining what gets funding, basically, and what doesn't. What gets the spotlight? What gets the op- what kinds of stories and perspectives are given this sort of opportunity to be sort of like projected to a large audience and what doesn't. And so, yeah, I think that was an early indication that there was something wrong and that there might be some opportunity to uh, inject the culture with these other viewpoints. Why is he called Roycey? He has two names, Roycey. I missed all of this, obviously, but this was his name's like that's his just his poster name, and then his thing was called Hartiste or like Um, Chateau Hartiste was 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 the blog. Um, Roycey was just his like gnome de guerre, you know, like is (laughs) in this case. uh, I don't. I don't remember if there's an origin story for Roycey, what that means. But that's he got always doxed later, right? So somebody doxed I him or something? I think so. I mean, yeah. I, I he got really big. You know, he was a major figure at the time. Yeah. Um, well, because he's really the – I love viewing, like, the pathways in. And I think this is so true even to this day. You yeah. either came in through sailor race – race science <laughs> or Roycey red pill gender, or, you know, men and women, whatever you want to call it. It was like one of the two. Like yeah. I came in through the one pipeline, other people came in through the other pipeline. And we all, that's like, we all met in the middle. So this is an interesting uh, observation because what you're pointing to is just, okay, here are these guys who are saying these things. Okay. The appeal of both of these people and in like, honestly, I don't want to say the race or like gender sex stuff is incidental. It's not entirely incidental, but what, what the, the main draw, the main appeal is that you have these guys who are articulating um, ideas and uh, observations about the world that are obviously true. Um, they, uh, they're not only sort of intuitively true, there's all this sort of data and uh, sociology and sort of the the kind of like, you know, the, the sort of like scientific, um, rational uh, uh, justification for these for these ideas and these and these observations are airtight. And yet, no one else is touching them. No one else outside of these small, weird corners of the internet will go anywhere near, these obvious, demonstrably true claims that also have extraordinary explanatory power over this huge swath of questions that we're asking ourselves politically and culturally. And so like, you know, I I came from 
uh, this kind of, I don't know, West or sort of coastal lib milieu. That's where I sort of grew up and that's how I first encountered the world. And when you grow up in that, um, there's a lot of anomalies that you see and these things that sort of like are, are these enigmas about the world that you can't explain through this, through this like standard lib worldview, yeah. which is like the ruling right. class prevailing worldview, whether you're a conservative or not, whether you vote GOP or Democrat or whatever, that worldview can't explain these things. And, and so someone like Royce or uh, Sailor in very simple and straightforward terms explain these this phenomena to you. And so that's the appeal. And then once you're like reading them, you start to then and you see the patterns that they're um that they're seizing on. Right. Yeah. Then you start to see this stuff all over the place. Yeah, and exactly. the whole world kind of opens up to you. Right. Well, because they're explaining the modern condition and in yeah. ways that is just not allowed, you know, yes. and it's, it, and I, yeah, I think we all come to it through maybe mold bugs, the third one where it's yeah, like, right. That's it's right. Like liberalism. People who are always wondering, I think that the big question of, of mold, the mold bug crew is, and they're kind of the techie, they're like the political nerd ones. Like they really yeah. want like a rational explanation for everything. Yeah. And I think that their, their big question is why does liberalism always win? Like, yeah, why right. is it that every single issue ever always ends up on yeah. the, that side, which is a great question. And I think that that's, they look to Moldbug to answer that question. Whereas for me, it was understanding male, female dynamic dynamics. It actually, it, had I not gotten together with my wife so early, I probably would have never, wouldn't be here right now, right. but it was like, once I stopped getting laid, <laughs> you know I mean? like once yeah. you're in a long-term relationship and yeah. you're not like chasing chicks anymore you start to just like see the world more clearly, you know, like I, yeah. I think you just start to see like male, female dynamics differently. Yeah. And I was like, well, this is weird. Like in the workplace and yeah, uh, you know, trying to understand why women behave certain ways. And so I just was drawn to the, you know, I was just drawn to the red pill and, yeah. and that, that was my way in. And I think um, yeah, for some people ahead. it's race, you know, for some mm -hmm. people they're like, well, I'm supposed to believe that they genuinely believe what they're told that, you know, like, well, it's this blank slate yeah. worldview. Every, right. everybody is the exact same. Yeah. We're all sort yeah. of operating from this blank slate. And then any, any difference that arises, whether it's individual difference or uh, group level differences is the result of some sort of, exogenous social yeah. factor right. you know and that and then you you have to like go on this hunt to find what that factor is to explain away these massive divergences in a huge variety of uh human behaviors and right. so what you know sailor does is he says no you don't have to go there there isn't always going to be this clean the sort of sociological explanation or it's not explained through the superstructure of systemic racism or whatever else there's a more parsimonious explanation for this that is backed up by all this evidence and science and everything else and that explains it all and you know the other thing that so what yarvin does then where yarvin fits into this piece is 
he provides this historical diagnostics yeah, yeah. for why right. it is the way that it is. Right. Taylor and Hartiste are more just, okay, well, we're just starting with, it is this way. And therefore, here's how we should observe, be observing these, this phenomenon. Yarvin does a, a, a like, it's a kind of monumental project to try to explain how it got to be this way. And so it's interesting in that way. But what all three of these guys do is uh, allow what they're, there's this um, sort of perspective taking that when I remember when first reading Sailor, I was just blown away by some of these observations he would make because he wouldn't allow himself to um, sort of stop in his tracks and not think a thought if it followed from a previous set of claims and propositions that had been proven to be true. He was willing to take whatever that next step was. And so there's this logical step that you take that's one step past where, you know, uh, the libs are allowed to go. They stop themselves short. There's a, they have this kind of governor on their, on their motor. They, they can't go that extra into that extra gear. Um, yeah, I think that's and, very true. All of these guys will do that. They just say the thing that comes next after this set of propositions and once you are comfortable doing that, uh, you can discover all sorts of new stuff about the world and actually discover what you believe. Until you allow yourself to do that, you don't actually know what you believe, or at least in my case, I didn't. I realized that most of my worldview was some combination of intuition, just pure intuition, which is fine, but then just received beliefs that other people were telling me. And I was just choosing among these received beliefs rather than combining my intuition with you know the, the the end point of these logical steps that I was willing to take. Well, and that's probably true for everybody though, right? I mean, that process that you just described is true for everyone. We all have our intuition and then we all have our received beliefs. Yeah. And yeah. we all, as we mature, we all kind of like develop more specifically into our own beliefs and what we actually believe, right? Based on gathering more information and having more confidence and getting sick of pretending, you know, and like feeling bad when we pretend, you know, I think that's a big yeah. way that you realize you're like saying something and you're like, I don't actually believe this. Like, why am I saying this? You know, and we all get kind of bullied into doing that for a certain amount of time. And then, you know, I think, ultimately you sort of figure it out on your own, which is why so many older people are conservative and yeah. younger people aren't because younger people are just bred into this, you know, they're just bred into this liberal regime that we have. And also you see a lot of religious people going the other way, right? Like a lot yeah. of religious people then later in life become much more liberal because they're like, Oh, well, I didn't really, I didn't believe this then. So I think it kind of like goes in both ways. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, before we move away from you, the, your, and I always ask everybody this, your PFP is this like skeleton on a horse. What is that from? Oh yeah. Okay. So that's, um, there's this guy, William Cooper, uh, who is, I'm looking for the book on my shelf right now. Um, let's see if I can hold it up for you. Yeah. Uh, Behold a pale horse. This guy, William Cooper um, wrote this book. Oh yeah. Right, right. Right. In the nineties. And, um, this is his own like hand-drawn cover from his book. 
And so I took a piece of that and I thought it was just, it's this just kind of like arresting image, you know? So I thought it was just interesting and compelling on its own, but also Cooper is a kind of fascinating character. He's the, uh, he's, he's like a conspiracy theorist um, who famously predicted 9-11. There's a audio clip of William Cooper in 2001, I believe it's from 2001 or 2000, in the summer before 9-11 happens on his like radio show uh, saying that Osama bin Laden was going to uh, blow up the Twin Towers. And then um, a year later, he gets killed by the feds at his compound in Arizona the pretext for this is that, or the official story is that he was wanted on tax evasion charges and the feds showed up um, based on these like tax evasion charges. And he like hold himself up in this compound in Arizona and initiated the shootout with the feds and they ended up murdering the guy. So he's like this famous, um, you know, subcultural sort of conspiracy theory figure He's famously his book, other than I think the Quran and the Bible is uh, the most read book in prisons in the country. Oh, yeah, it's, I remember somebody giving it to me. That's why the, that thing looks so familiar. Yeah, I remember somebody giving it to me like when I was budding, you know, budding as a dissident thinker. Somebody was like, oh, yeah. you need to read this. You take this. I never read it. But, yeah, but, yeah, I mean, I he's an interesting guy. I, I don't know that his brand of conspiracy theories is precisely like my own. It, yeah. it really isn't. But um, I like, I like kind of sort of, he comes from this um, line of like very distinctly American sort of, uh, he's like a folk figure, you know, almost like a, um, American, like, I, it, it, there's something sort of almost like mythological about him yeah, in his life right. that I find He's interesting. Like the, the old spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, right, the original right. spirit of what we're doing here. Yeah. Um. Okay. Cool. All right. Let's. Let, I don't want to run out of time before. I really just want to read this because I. I think so many people have in their head, especially probably the people who listen to this, um, who are kind of edge people. Um, they hear passage prize, they always think about it, but I don't know if they, you know, I don't know if everybody like understands truly the kind of motivation behind it. So I just want to read really quickly, if you don't mind, or actually maybe you should read. Do you want to read? No, I'd prefer you to read it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll just really quickly read the first four paragraphs of this essay on your website, which was for the submission page for the second round of passage prize. So we're right now you've just announced the winners for the second issue of Passage Prize. How often are they going to come out? Once a year. Okay, once a year. So we're on year two. The book is being created based on all this material. There's several categories. There's art, poetry, nonfiction, and fiction. Is there anything else? Nope, that's it for okay. now. I mean, I'd like to add some maybe music later on, but yeah, that's it for now. Yeah. And then uh, the first version was called Exit from the Longhouse. And Lomez himself became uh, even more famous for recently completely breaking the internet 
with his piece uh, in First Things, which is a Christian magazine about the Longhouse. Mm-hmm. And the Longhouse, I, I believe the word comes from BAP. Yeah. Um, it is the notion of this sort of feminized workplace or feminized environment in which everything, it's a panopticon, everything is watched, everything is about um, the health of the community versus production. It's an anti-meritocratic, it's this, uh, it comes from the notion of old school societies, almost every society dating back a certain amount of years has some sort of long house that they literally all lived in together at the same time, like in the beach. I think if everybody has seen the beach yeah. <laughs> the movie, that's a long house. And it's also run by a woman in, in this exact same way. Also, I think like uh, in the, the ex- if you've seen all watched over by machines of love and grace, the Adam Curtis documentary, Adam Curtis is fucking awesome, but he has these documentaries and one of them or, or is uh goes into the geodesic dome societies that were happening in California in the 60s yeah. and the 70s. These were all longhouses. It was like everybody living together and we're supposed to be this flat environment. And then of course it ends up destroying itself because nobody hierarchies are needed, right? So um the longhouse has completely caught fire since you wrote this piece because everyone who has worked in the modern workplace has experienced this to some degree. So the longhouse has seems to me like one of these things like, like uh, anti seed oils Mm -hmm. that has legs so far beyond our guys. Like people are going to be saying the longhouse for, you know, just like how anti seed oils now are like mainstream almost. Um, so anyway, th- what I'm trying to establish here is that actually passage is one of the places that this comes from. So here, here is a, uh, Lomez's first beginning of his his essay here. <clears throat> uh, so he says, Dear Anon, there is an unnameable disease afflicting nearly all of modern life. It manifests as HR-style bureaucratic management of our behaviors, our relationships, and even how we think. It has been characterized as a feminine type of domineering and petty moralism, but it is pseudo-femininity, a, hyper, a hypertrophied, how do you say that? Hypertrophied, yeah. Hypertrophied. Perversion of the animus that in turn produces a perverse pseudo-masculinity, reducing us all to denatured, bug-like forms. It rules our public spaces openly and explicitly, but has also leaked into private life. It is carried on the very air we breathe. You hold it in your lungs and its poison flows through your blood. Nobody reading this is immune. These are the conditions of the longhouse, and in Passage Prize... We called on writers and artists to demonstrate a way out, to imagine and thereby bring into being places and worlds beyond its walls. We received many remarkable stories and pieces of art that did just this. The rich and varied contents of the Passage Prize book are a testament to the possibility that such places are retrievable, that from the wellspring of artistic creation, we can discover the means to find our way, a passage to something better. And a passage, I think, of course, comes from Ernst Younger's book, A Forest Passage, which is about... Yep. Being a rebel in an authoritarian world and how yep. you do that. Wait, sorry, yep. what? Yeah, correct. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. So, and I know Curtis Yarvin, that was like when I was working for him, that was the first thing he told me to read. Um, okay. But still within us, there's a lingering sickness. Even if we, as we exit the longhouse, we suffer its consequences. There is a certain languor you see in the way people walk, an erosion of the spirit around the eyes that is not so easily shaken. Men of a certain age born at the end of the, at, at, at the tail end of history, or even earlier, have only ever known confinement of this kind, have only ever known a social order intermediated by legalistic risk avoidance and a dogmatic obsession with safety above all other concerns. 
the cult of safetyism, which is yeah. something I say all the time that comes from you. Consent to this regime is rewarded with cheap hedonism, with the endless simulacra of authentic experience, porn and video games and medicated stupor, which which shallow gratifications only tightens one's leash to the long house feedlot. Exit is only complete once the affliction that has kept one confined is finally purged and the native impulses neutered by that confinement are restored. We must rewild. We must shed the deceptive comforts of safetyism and see through the lies it tells about human nature that we have been conditioned to accept. It's awesome. Yeah. So there we are. There we have it. Um, I guess I want to hear, and this is a good sort of uh, segue, where like um besides passage we we just saw vice for example get purchased by george soros which was just like the most hilariously perfect ending to that story (laughs) um how has it gotten this bad you're saying it's in the air right yeah Uh how has it infected the air and where else are you seeing people fighting this so what so the the idea is that there is a very prescribed way that one must behave within a work environment and as you said anybody who has been in a big sort of institution a big company um knows exactly what someone is talking about when they talk about this sort of hrization of yeah. of the workplace yep. and what that means and and how it and how sterile it is and sort of inhuman it is like it it it's attempts to sort of uh shave off all of the kind of interesting and uh you know potentially like sort of dangerous or risque stuff that people do in their day-to-day lives like through just sort of human instinct and you know maybe like workplace relationships is the most obvious place that you see this and how, you know, workplace relationships now need to be intermediated by these like HR mammies who can tell you whether it's appropriate to do this or that thing with your coworkers. Um, and so that, and, and everything, you know, you also see this in the way that HR, you know, in my former life, I would have to take once or twice a year, these like training seminars and you would sit down at your computer and they would show you like scenes would be enacted by these actors, you know, like in a workplace. <laughs> and uh, one guy is telling a joke to a female like um, employee who's her position is like slightly beneath his and and or then there's like a, a disagreement and you have to play the part of a of a administrator who's like mediating this disagreement and everything is scripted out. Everything is done according to this very narrow and constrained uh, sort of spectrum of behaviors. And okay, so this is in the workplace. And what I think has happened is this way of being in the world, leaving aside for the second how in, in the in the ways that this is feminine and distinctly feminine, this way of the sort of prescribed and constrained behavior, is now also a feature of private life to some degree. Uh, in other words, this this stuff has been taken from the workplace and like brought home. And I, I have a whole bunch of different theories for how this has happened, but this has certainly been accelerated by 
you know, like Zoom life that is was brought upon by COVID, where people's work lives literally were brought home in some sense. And the the dividing line between uh, people's work and people's private lives gets blurrier and blurrier um, by virtue of how people sort of uh, how they work in relation to like a physical space. Um, but there's more to it than that. You know, Bap talks about it in his book as well, this this concept of owned spaces. There are no owned spaces. All this space that we have in, in life, like, you know, you go outside and you look for a space that is free from the kind of like directives of some bureaucracy are very hard to find. I mean, you know, even like the wilderness, you go out into like the wilds, there is still these, these sort of like almost bureaucratic expectations about your behaviors uh, in within that within that space. And so when I say it's in the air we breathe, I mean that it's no longer just something you can escape from after you're done with work. And suddenly now you're at drinks with your coworkers and you're able to act differently than when you were in your cubicle. The, the differences between how you can act with them uh, at the bar after work or whatever, or at the, com or at, you know, some kind of like private party, I think is still sort of um, proscribed by those same sort of rules and expectations. And this is something that is permeated through our culture as well. Like when you look at the kind of TV film and um, in the, in the media that we're fed uh, the same, there's just this ever presence of this sort of HR director yeah. observing and um, telling us what we can do in every instance of our life. Well, it's a new code. It's like, um, you know, the funny thing is, like, in a way, it's like they have gotten what they wanted, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like they basically did change the world how they wanted to change it, where now we live in this environment where nobody says anything offensive. Yeah. Nobody touches each other. You know, um, BAP's thing about every corner is lit up because, you know, women have to have everything be safe. Yeah. Every, you know, everything is completely um, declawed and defanged. And, you know, I've tangled with HR. I've been, you know, eliminated by HR like five times, yeah. <laughs> you know, and every time it's a woman who just loves, you can just tell how uh -huh. happy she is to be just like, you know, killing me basically, yeah. you know I mean? It's yeah. like, she's like, man, my whole, ex my whole existence yeah. is to make sure guys like you yeah. are controlled, you know, because guys, somebody I just yeah. read was reading a female uh, writer the other day who was like, oh yeah, you know, I had an encounter with my, you know, brother's friend. Oh no, it was in Supreme. I forget where it was. It was in some great thing where there's a moment where there's like <coughs> a, a woman who's like dealing with her brother, who's like really, you know, swears and he's violent uh -huh. and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, I knew I had to dedicate the rest of my life to making sure guys like that were under control. Reforming right? him. Yeah. What, and uh -huh. it's like, because uh -huh. they, it makes them feel really uncomfortable and bad to be around guys who are, you know, unfortunately like, you know, look, I'm not saying men are better than women, but I, but, but like 
undeniably throughout history, the achievements, but you know, yeah. whether you want to say it's sexism or not, have been men who are behaving poorly or, yes. or you know, right? Like difficult men. And they yeah, hate I'm, Yeah. So they I think but they do. Maybe they hate it. I don't know. So I think Royce would say, getting back to the earlier part yeah, of our conversation, right. Royce would say, actually, no, this is like a shit test. It's all this a is shit a, test. This is a society-wide shit yeah. test. And these women- so should have, Tell us what a shit test is. Okay. So in this, I'll give you this, and, and we'll just speak through this context. So we have this, uh, these women who have sort of risen to places of power and authority and who, who are using that position of authority to, in this case, in your case, in your confrontation with your HR or whatever, um, administrator- to kind of neuter you, to kind of reform you, and yes, uh, and 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 sort of shave off your your sharp edges. Um, what Royce would say is, they actually don't want that. What they're daring you to do now, in this in the specific instance of your HR lady, they would use that against you and fire you if you didn't conform to what they were asking. But as a general matter, what what these women and what these what they actually want is you to defy them. They want to test your resolve yes. to assert your sort of sense of self-ownership and masculinity in defiance of their demands that you do otherwise and be this kind of docile creature who just follows their directives. And so that's what they actually, this is, again, this is like the Royce view would be like, no, actually, they don't want this. They are as miserable as we are, but there's this disequilibrium where men have somehow forgotten or are incapable because of a variety of sort of misaligned incentive structures to um, sort of defy these directives in ways that women actually want us to. And so we're failing this huge shit test and everybody's miserable because of it. Um, I so, think there's yeah. something really interesting about what you're saying in the sense that I actually don't think they do want to fire you. Usually it's, yeah. it's like the, the men will move to fire, right? Yeah. The men are much more comfortable with that. The women want to beat you, beat you down, but they don't want you to go. They don't actually yeah. want you to leave. They, they want you to stay and be beaten down and be on a pip, right? A pip. Yeah. You know what a pip is? <laughs> no, I don't. Oh, dude, that's the, the a pip is the. It's first of all, it's the best word ever, yeah. but it's a performance improvement plan. Okay. So <laughs> I've been put on like seventeen pips. Okay. And and I'm always like, you're fucking putting me on a. Fuck, I'm I'm an adult grown man, yeah. and you're oh, putting geez. me on like a little kindergarten. Like check the boxes. Like improving. Yeah. I'm like I'm literally bringing in billions of dollars to this fucking company, and you're putting me on a fucking pip. Like fuck you. Yeah. But this is like the new thing is pips. And they, well, they, so I've seen want. this now that you mentioned that. I didn't know that pip was the word, but. There are these videos I've seen in the last like year and you've asked like, how has this leaked into private life? Where are these couples? They're like, you know, these like TikTok clips or whatever. And they're like sitting around their kitchen table presenting each other with like performance improvement reports or whatever. <laughs> like, here's what I need. You know, there's like a, a yeah. chart that they're consulting together and like, okay, so over the last, you know, month, Here's how well you've performed on your dishes duty and you've received a, you know, a score of 87 on your yeah. dishes and you're, you know, putting away your socks. You've received yeah. only a 73. So we're that's something we're going to, we're going to put a flag there. We're going to return to that in a minute. You know, they go down this list of all this stuff and like, have you been 
uh, willing to comfort me when you've seen that I've that I that I'm sad and in need of emotional support. You know, you've only scored like a 68 there. So that's something we really need to focus. You no know, shit like this. So I think this attitude, this kind of uh, bureaucratization of private life, and and specifically in this way that uh, you know is modeled after this like HR style administration of human behavior is a way that people are handling interpersonal relationships privately because that's kind of all they know. And that's another part of this. This this kind of HRization now follows you from the time that you're, you know, a, a five-year-old entering kindergarten all the way up through your sort of early stages of adulthood and college. I also, uh, you know, as we were talking to, I wanted to point to a specific instance that that is salient to me, which was uh, during the Trump election, the first one, 2016, he got in trouble for that leaked audio of him saying like grab her by the pussy, you know, when they're, when you're a celebrity, they let you. Um, and, and I remember the, his defense of it was like, this is locker room talk. Okay. Which should be, and, and he was right. Okay. Of course he's right. That there are things you can say in private amongst friends, like amongst other men about women or whatever that are inappropriate for other public contexts. And as a society, we've like all previously had this tacit understanding of where these barriers were. And yes, when men are together in the golf course locker room, they're going to be telling jokes that they're not going to be telling in these other contexts. And that's fine. And, and in fact, that's how it should be. But what was interesting about that episode was the entirety of the lib media was trying to tell us, no, even in the context of the locker room, you're not allowed to say that. You can't say these things even privately amongst friends. You're not allowed to talk about the pussy. That this is like, as a man, this is off limits. And I just remember thinking that is, and also what was fascinating about that was all these men, you know, quote unquote, these like live men saying, yeah, that's right. We need to do better men. We, need, we shouldn't be talking about this stuff. And you, like, it was just a, a sort of remarkable episode in this willingness by these other men to capitulate on this point and give up uh, this sort of private domain that had previously belonged to men. Um, and it was very much in the same vein as you see like, you know, the good white liberals say, like, as a white person, I, you know, agree about this or that thing. There was that same thing happening with, as a man, I agree that we should not be saying these things in private. I think it's a lot. I, I don't think hardly any men actually believe it, though. You know, I mean, first of all, most the thing that I just keep coming back to recently is that most men in the country voted for Trump. Right. You know, yes. Most of the men in America yes. voted for Donald Trump. But so it's like, it's so funny to live in LA and know that because it's like, you would never, that, that sounds so insane, you know, that, to, to think that. But yeah. But it, I mean, I don't know. I haven't looked, I haven't dug into the data, but my suspicion is that if you dug a little bit deeper, one, you would find that, yes, certainly the first time around they did. But A, it was skewed towards, um, you know, what we might call like, uh, 
um, like like American kulak class, you know, small yeah. business owners, these type of people, not people in the media, not people making decisions about what kind of shows, stories, ideas are presented sort of to the public, quote unquote. And then secondly, the it didn't happen the second time around, I don't think. And uh, Trump ended up losing a huge chunk of like the suburban vote, male vote, previously conservative vote. And, you know, bow bre uh, browbeaten by their wives into, hey, you know, we you can't be doing that stuff. You know, we can't yeah. be acting like Trump because, well, you're right that I don't think most men want that. Again, all the social incentives are aligned to pretend as if you do. So well, okay. So that's, that's what I wanted to say next is, so I'm reading now, I love these like mogul stories. Like, yeah. uh, like I love, I love like just mogul stories and like shoe dog or, um, uh, you know, the, the Steve jobs documentary, but the best yeah. ones are these horrible LA Cretans like Donald Sterling or yes. the one I'm reading right now is, <laughs> is Sumner Redstone. So it's okay. about the whole like Redstone disaster. Right. Uh -huh. So the Redstone disaster, you have Les Moonves, who was the head of CBS, yeah. right. basically getting me too by Sherry Redstone in like a power battle, right? Right. Uh-huh. And so Les Moonves was going around banging every, you know, anytime he got in a room with a woman by himself, yeah. he would just throw himself at them. Like literally, okay. like one of the best ones is is like a cancer doctor who's like uh -huh. he's in there for five seconds and he she's just like he comes right at me and he's just humping me like suddenly. Amazing. He yeah. was just like a total rabbit. <laughs> and you know, which is like whatever. Yeah. Um, but it, I, he didn't like rape anybody. He was always like, right, right. he just tried. And then they uh -huh, said uh -huh. no, or yes. And then it was, that was it. Yeah. So, um, uh, he, the, the, the key moment to me here is that all these guys who are in control of society now th that, yeah. uh, you know, as Bab says, we're, we're, uh, selling fish outside Minsk in several generations. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and people like this are in my family, it reminds me exactly yeah. of my grandfather. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't care about honor at all. Like for uh -huh. them, there is no honor. Like there's only getting ahead. There's only yeah. like saying the thing you're supposed to say in order to get to the next level. That's all yeah. they believe in. They don't like the former, you know, and, and I'm not saying that's this, look, every power structure has its positives and its negatives. It all has certain things about it that are good and bad and that it does well versus it doesn't well, do well. It used to be you had to send your kids to the military if you were an elite. That was like yeah. part of what it meant to be an elite. You had to lead by example. Now it's the total opposite. Now it's like you look better if you figure out how to cheat the system more, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's, the, there's this moment where uh, Sumner, a perfect example, Sumner Redstone loved the Red Sox. Okay. But when the Red Sox were using losing, he'd suddenly become a Yankees fan for like <laughs> several days and like wear Yankee hats. And everybody would be like, what the fuck? <laughs> and he'd be like, yeah. no, I'm Yankees because yeah. they're winning. Like that's yeah. the mentality of these people. So they're, they're uh, so Les Moonves totally is out there being the most me tooable person ever. And of course, when it comes to Weinstein and the other dominoes that are falling right before him, he's the number one person out there saying, this is terrible. We need to reform the industry. You know, we need to, this is really inappropriate. This behavior can't stand. And Matt Lauer yeah. was doing the same thing. Like they were yeah. all throwing all these guys under the bus without any 
Like not one of them ever stopped and said, Hey, all right, maybe this isn't such a big deal. Right. Cause they, it was coming for them, but they didn't care. They just said the exact opposite of the truth because it was the thing that was going to get them ahead. Right. Yes. Yes. So, so I just think that that's why this has happened. It's because the men in power are, they're just going with the flow. They're just like, all right, well, I'm supposed to say this. So I'm going to say it, even though they don't believe it at all. So uh, someone like Moonves or even like Matt Lauer, uh, they're, they're basically sociopaths. I mean, there's something sort of pathological about their, about their psychologies and about their behaviors that I don't know that they, well, they might, they, they, they tell us something about how like the elites behave and the particular incentive structures that they're responding to. And that does, that does, uh, redound to like how normies sort of behave in some way. But normies are behaving according to a totally different set of incentive structures or a different kind of psychology. And yeah, like, true, true. Very true. I, I, uh, I, it's hard for me to talk about this because like, you know, a lot of this is just personal anecdotes. So the people, you know, you look around, you see the people, you know, and like how they've kind of behaved over the last few years and why they've kind of done the things that they've done and how their views have shifted. But I have one friend I can say who was a Trump voter in 2016, sort of loved his kind of like brash energy and you know the things he said this is a totally apolitical guy he wouldn't be able to tell you a single thing about any like policies or whatever and doesn't frankly doesn't care he's just responding to this kind of charisma and energy and humor of donald trump so he likes that fast forward now four years and his wife and i know this because like you know I, my, my wife sees on their facebook page and instagram and stuff she's like posting black squares for black lives matter and like She's this whatever. I don't think she's any more political than he is, but she's responding to a set of social incentives in her own sort of uh, social circle. And she becomes this kind of like adamant, like Black Lives Matter supporter. And she's posting all this stuff about me too and how it's time for like, you know, women and minorities to kind of like rise up and like put white men in their place and all this kind of shit. And And then I see him around the time of the 2020 election and I was talking to him about about Trump and he confesses to me that he's not going to like vote for Trump this time around. And, and he can't do it because, you know, Trump is just too he's too crass, you know, and like he says to me, like, have you seen his tweets? You know, like which is something he must have picked up somewhere. He had, he had heard someone say like that Trump's tweets are out of control. So now he has this talking point that he can go to to rationalize in his own head why he's changed his mind. But the real reason he's changed his mind is because in his little private life and his little private circle, the person who is the alpha in that private circle is his wife. And she's the one who dictates the kind of uh, ambient worldview and uh, the sort of positioning, the orientation of their family and like what they believe and what they stand for. And so outside of his house, he has like a, we believe in science sign, for example. Oh my okay? God. He actually yeah, yeah. has one. You know, but, one of but, those people. Oh, oh my yeah, God. Absolutely. I mean, if you knew where I came from, this wouldn't surprise you. So much. Okay. <laughs> um, but yes, absolutely. He does. And, uh, but to him, that's nothing that, that is no more significant than like having some other kind of lawn ornament in his yeah, lawn. Like, right. why would he care? Why do I care? like a yeah, flamingo yeah. in his lawn. His wife wants it there. That's why it's there. And there's no other meaning to it at all. And so 
and he, I mean, to, to, to be fair to him, like he's got other things he's worried about. Like he coaches his kids little league and he's got like a job where he has a lot of responsibilities and that takes up 90% of his like mental resources. And he's got his, uh, you know, fantasy football team that he's got to, you know, keep a close eye on and that's what's important. And so, uh, and so when it comes to these other decisions, his wife is making that choice. And whenever this conversation is going to come up where someone like me comes into his life and I'm asking about it and his wife's sitting over there, he's going to make a choice about where he wants to expend his resources and like what kinds of arguments and fights that he wants to have right. and which ones he wants to just leave decisions he wants to just leave to his wife. And I think for a lot of men, and this is maybe a generational difference, like a lot of men I know who are roughly our age uh, have given over the control and decision-making around their family's beliefs and sort of general orientation toward the public world to the wife. And so, uh, and, and a lot of these political decisions get sort of captured by that. Yeah. I think, I think that that's true. I mean, is that new though, or has that always been, I mean, have women that has a certain type of women, woman always kind of, dominated I that i is that a new thing or is that a i think it's new i think it's new ish i mean um it's certainly not true for my grandparents i can say that and it seems to have been less true uh with previous generations though boomers might have been the first where this was this was considered more normal um but i don't know i i but i i don't know i i don't have like a historical diagnosis of this but it but it's easy enough to observe that in contemporary american life middle class american life you know suburban life um the, those decisions like i think women have an outsized uh influence on that kind of decision making which follows from like a massive reorientation of how the family is structured. I mean, most of these people are dual income families, which right. would not have necessarily yeah. been the case even a generation earlier. Right, right. And right. so all sorts of stuff is mixed up in that and, yeah. and responsibilities and who has this kind of um, unspoken sort of control over what? I mean, when you have more well-defined roles, breadwinner, homemaker roles, oh. these things get sorted out in ways um there's just sort of like organically you, you don't have to negotiate this at the table it's just there's like a set of expectations that come with that uh with that division of labor without a cl as clear a division of labor these things are now up for negotiation a lot of these questions you'd be shocked at how many women if you get past their initial like um furious reaction yeah. will literally say, yeah, I probably shouldn't be voting. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I know. <laughs> like if, you, if you actually sit down, I've like had this discussion with a lot of women and I say, well, like, all right, look, I'm not saying you shouldn't vote, but like, do you really know any of this shit? And most of them will be like, well, yeah, no, I mean, like I should, like, I should vote for president. Yeah. That's pretty much, yeah. that's like the one I know, you know, but like all this other stuff. I mean, it's like, you know, you think back to, you know, white landowning men being the one who are voting. Yeah. And it's like, you know, when I'm growing up as a liberal, it's like, you hear that and you're enraged. Like, yeah. why should it be white landowning men? And then you yeah. kind of like, as I got older and, you know, you read Mobug and stuff and you're like, well, maybe it's because they're the ones who actually like 
have read all the nuances of the, yeah. oh, we, we need to have this tariff here and we need to have, you know, and we're voting for all in California, we're voting for all this shit. Yeah. And it's like, nobody knows the first fucking thing about it, you know? And I think you're yeah. totally right. And not just women and nobody, but you're totally right that it's like, the, it really does come from the, it starts in the workplace. I think that that's why we're keep coming back to that. We keep yeah. coming back that it's like this male, female dynamic thing. Women flooding the workplace has really damaged shit, like really yeah. badly in, in ways that people just aren't willing to openly see, you know? Yeah. And I think yeah. now that's why the longhouse is just such a powerful thing because it's we're seeing that it is literally eating everything. It's eating everything. Yes. And all art, all culture, that's where we're really seeing it the worst, you know. And and I think the Bud Light thing, yeah, absolute longhouse, perfect example, right? And I think that that's what Pash is just standing for, is is like uh the reaction to that, which is is so great because it's saying, like, look, we can we can create stuff outside of this environment and it's pure and it's good, but yeah, I don't know. Why, what are you thinking about that? Is the stuff that you're getting for passage? Like, uh, you know, is it going to be the next, <laughs> what are you thinking of? <laughs> so it's, you know, th there's huge variance here. Right, um, right. What any kind of nascent subculture is going to feature is a lot of, naive art amateurish art it's not polished or produced it it's got a lot of energy and yeah. uh sort yeah. of uh this um very powerful kind of creative force behind it that compensates for the lack of you know craftsmanship and and polish and and so i wouldn't not all of it can be characterized that way but a lot of what we're getting can be characterized in that way it's just it, uh, these the people writing and, and submitting for us just lack the experience and the uh you know they just haven't put in the hours on their craft um to generate work that is as high quality of craftsmanship on the other hand we do we are getting some writing from people who I don't know who they are. Many of them are Anons, but I can pretty easily tell that they are accomplished, seasoned writers and artists because there's just like, you can tell there's a certain polish there. The, the, the mechanics of the writing, um, if you know what you're looking for, are all there. You know, these, you know, you're a writer. So I know you know this. There are these little hinge points in, a, in an essay or a story where the writer's moving from one idea or sort of character point of view to the other. And it's, it's something that if you're not practiced at it, it, it's really easy to mess up and it's glaring like the, you know, these little things that, they, that you can get wrong um, on that kind of stuff. So what we're seeing is people who know how to do that. I know these people are, are, are seasoned writers and they're coming to us because they are, they have been operating within this sort of longhouse environment where they probably felt restricted um, and sort of straitjacketed about what they can write about and, and the kinds of stuff that they can, they can produce. And so we're giving them an opportunity to kind of, you know, be wild, to kind of say the things that they've been wanting to say and write in the way that they've been writing, uh, write in the way they've been wanting to write, but um, haven't been allowed to. So it's this combination of this really, 
um, unseasoned, but uh, powerful and uh, sort of highly motivated sort of young, young writers um, or green writers. And then uh, this other sort of disaffected group of writers who are coming to us uh, from that other world. And so, you know, it's a combination. And I think as we grow, we're going to start to see better and better stuff because we'll get more and more stuff. And so, um, you know, it's not all going to be like the best stuff in the world, but here and there, you know, I've seen things that where you just go, wow, that is really good. That is much better than anything I've read in any like normie literary journal or like the New Yorker or the Paris Review in the last 10 years. I mean, if you look through that stuff, it really kind of sucks. I mean, oh yeah, no, it's there, there's occasionally you'll find like an, an okay piece of writing, but it mostly sucks. Well, and, and we got to remember that that's, it's such an apex fallacy also. It's like, even if the New Yorker every now and then publishes a good piece, yeah. which it does, mm -hmm. you're talking about the best thing yeah. you know you're, it's like you're you're looking for the best thing that now has been reduced to every now and then publishing a good thing right. whereas right. everything else beneath that is now just utter crap like the atlantic it's really it's bad. just totally yeah. like yeah. hollowed out you can just you can like it's so weird like i've been reading magazines my whole life yeah. i love magazines when you pick up the atlantic you used yeah. to be like oh there's gonna be something it like had weight to it now yeah. you pick up the Atlantic, you know, this is all bullshit. Like this is a propaganda rag. Like you can yeah. just feel it. Like you open it. It just like, it feels cheap. It looks cheap. Everything about it is fucking cheap. The yeah. only ones that aren't are Harper's. It, everything else is hollowed out and done. GQ pay to play. It's all fake. Everything is entirely fake now. What about Nothing New York Magazine? What? New York Magazine. New York Magazine is the one is amazingly like yeah. still doing real journalism. Some they're like one of the yeah. last ones. It's also it's like New York Post still does obviously yeah. in its own way like real journalism because that they're just like legacy things that somehow survive. Right. Let me ask you uh, on air what what are your thoughts on the Vanity Fair piece on um, on us? You know James Pogue uh, and you don't have to talk about Vanity Fair as a sort of magazine publication generally speaking, but do you think that sort of meets the standard of good journalism that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, Pogue is doing the best he can. Well, you know, he's he's <laughs> he's fighting the battle valiantly yeah. in the mainstream and you know, he's trying to get real stories in there. The, yeah. You know, that piece wasn't very good, not because of him. It just was very so much going on. It didn't really have that much of a clear like narrative unlike his last one which really did. I loved well, his last one. Okay, but all right, so I'm going to I read that piece and uh I like, I mean, James is a very good writer. And uh, one thing I see happening there, and I don't know this for sure. It's not like I've talked to him about this specifically, but um, he can't, again, he, I don't think he can really say what he wants to say. And I don't know precisely what James wants to say about this scene. I really don't, but whatever it is, it's more sort of complicated and difficult to, sort of uh, articulate than what I think his editors at Vanity Fair are allowing him to write. Because it may be sympathetic in ways that they're not allowing him to be sympathetic. You're shaking your head. No. I don't think that's really true. I mean, like his, so he's, I love what he covers. He has a great instinct for what's real and what's true. And and he has a great instinct for legit real stories, right? Uh -huh. Um, 
his Mackie piece was awesome in, in yeah. the New York Times. I loved that. And I loved, again, his first uh, Vanity Fair piece, which is about hanging out with Curtis, basically, and going yeah. and hanging out with J.D. Vance. I thought that that piece was really, really, really good. One of the best pieces like I've read in a long time. I don't think James, what James wants is to be a successful writer. That's what James yeah. wants to be. James isn't like yearning, dying to like destroy uh, Globo Homo. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's, he's not like us. He's he's not there. He's not there to fight a, a battle, you know, like he's there uh -huh. to be famous and to be a, a famous writer. And he knows in his soul, because he's a, a an actually guy with integrity and also cares about the art of what he does. He knows that, great writing you have to go to these controversial places or else it's yeah. going to be shit it's going to be all just all the rest of the schlock that they publish in vanity fair right yeah uh so he knows he has to dip into us right it's like asher pen the publisher of yeah. sex mag now making a movie about delicious tacos right asher pen is our i mean i look he's been on the podcast i'm not going to say he's not a good guy but politically, he is our enemy. You know, he he is not <laughs> on our side. He's on the other side. He's he is the enemy, right? Yeah. That doesn't mean we can't be friends, and it doesn't mean we can't you know connect when we can connect. I, we totally can. You know, you should, as Nietzsche says, you should uh, your enemies should be. You should elevate have elevated enemies. The better your yeah. enemies are, the better you are. Well, so okay, oh, I, th this this raises right. a, a secondary question. I mean, uh, if you want to get back to the. Magazine no, no. writing part of it, we can. But uh, so this is interesting. There's something that's happening here, and I'm seeing this with Passage, is that, you know, whether it's Asher Penn or people who are ideologically somewhere else, what they're, what they're seeing is there's this heat coming from this yeah. space. Right. There's life here. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's actual sort of creative energy here. There's people who are doing interesting things and even if it's not polished and perfect, there's a certain amount of excitement about what's going on. And uh, because it, because we're putting off heat, that's attracting all these people who are kind of like uh, walking the darkness on the periphery. They want to come toward the heat source. And so, you know, someone like Asher, let's say, or whoever it is, and it may be opportunistic, are coming into this space because they they want they want to be warmed by the fire here. How do you think this should be navigated? This dynamic, like oh, to yeah. what extent do you in, uh, allow these outside this outside presence in? Um, what value can they bring to this, or or is it or are you opening yourself up to sort of being quote unquote like infiltrated in some way where? This entire yeah. scene, you know, just gets taken over and uh, repurposed for their agenda rather than what its intent is uh, starting out. Yeah, it's like with uh, it's a perfect example in Sex Magazine. There's these ads for this brand called Praying, which okay. is like sexy girl wearing cross on her that says like i love god in my tits you know like and it, it's like it's disgusting because you're like all right yeah okay yeah. religion's suddenly cool all these rich jewish girls are larping as catholic right, and it's right. like you know <laughs> the reason they're doing that i'll tell you what's what's happened with culture in about like 2013 or whatever i think actually 9 11 had a lot to do with this honestly which is mm -hmm. which is funny but um 
culture was going in a band where you know how like 60s and 70s gave birth to the 80s where we went all the way back to conservative or, or like right wingish that was cool yeah. for a little while right yeah punk has ultra right wing uh definitely background yeah. and so that the pendulum swings back and forth a healthy society back and forth back and forth right the pendulum swings pendulum swings and that's how it's supposed to go the pendulum in about i mark it as an advertising guy to the dress norm the normcore movement dress normal okay. campaign there was this moment where kanye started dressing like a you know seinfeld dad uh -huh. <laughs> culture was getting ready to swing back to normal uh -huh. white people right when, like when that's is where this? we were what going. are we talking about so i what? wrote an article about it in, in la weekly at the time i think this is like 2014 so before okay. trump every okay. culture wanted so badly uh -huh. swing back right yeah 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 but by that point i guess the longhouse probably probably is like it has a lot to do with women in the workplace it making yeah. these decisions like the people in charge said no we're not right. swinging we're not swinging back that way we're going deeper the other way and that's where we see deep fried culture like soundcloud rappers who have like you know face tattoos and like yeah. crazy hair. Cause they were like, Oh, we have to go deeper, like more, more, you know, more degenerate, more degenerate, even though yeah. culture didn't really want to go more degenerate. It actually wanted to go back the other way. Right. So yes. we have this like split between like ultra degeneracy, like trans chop all your shit off. And then people like us who stand for where culture genuinely naturally wanted to go, which is more yeah. right wing. Right. Yeah. So 2014 is exactly the time. Uh, everyone I know. So okay, how do I say this? I'm, I I I was in a particular kind of working milieu where uh, I'm surrounded by the types of people who dictate the direction that like the live movement is going. Okay, let's say that Th these are like the people. Th these are the script writers for the left. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody who is in this broader institution that I know points to exactly this time period, uh, end of 2014 through 2015. That's when everything uh, turned on its head. Like you said, there there seemed to be this kind of like progression back towards like normalcy, a kind of like nice guy, sweater vest, Mitt yeah. Romney-esque sort of, you know, suburban conservatism. But this all flips. My, I, you know, I had a long thread about this the other day, but I think Obergefell was the big turning point. It may be incidental. Like there may have been other things happening that would have caused this anyway, but I saw Obergefell as the switch flipping. This was like, wait, this is the case. What is yeah, Obergefell gets decided in in mid two thousand. What was that again? This is gay marriage. Oh yeah, gay marriage, right? Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, gay sorry. marriage. Right. So this yep. is this is the death blow to conservatism. The left. Mm -hmm felt like in the aftermath of that, they had won. They had won the 21st century, the first two decades, three decades, really, maybe going back to like Newt Gingrich era, like conservatism, going back to the early 90s. Uh, they had won the culture war that had spanned that entire timeline. And Obergefell was that death blow. That was the mm -hmm. final uh, nail in the coffin. And so everything since then has been this kind of uh, colonization, like rehabilitating the natives. Um, 
Wait, wait so here, let me just fr finish this framework. I think that yeah, that's ahead. very, Sorry. it's interesting yeah. to think that gay marriage was like the moment. And I think that's very like true. That's actually was the last minute I was liberal. Cause yeah. like that was when I was against it, obviously in my heart, yeah. but I was just being forced by everybody around yeah. me to say right. I was for it. And I was saying it because I yeah. was like, well, I, uh, like, well you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I don't care. Like, right. like I didn't really care. Right. So I was just like, you know, do I really give a shit? No, I don't right. really care. So like why, but, but I knew deep down. So I was saying yes, but I didn't mean it. And, you know, that's one of those yeah. like cut out the eye moments where I like, you know, never going back there, but um, the, 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 what I want to get back to the Asher pens of the world and the oh, yeah. infiltrators, right. The, the James Pogue potential, even though I, I don't think James Pogue is an infiltrator. I think, yeah, he's, I don't either. I think I don't he either. genuinely just wants to be a great, he wants to be a yeah. great Gonzo writer. That's what he yeah. wants. And you know, hey, they, I all the power to him. Um, I think the inf the but I'm more worried about the like dime square type rich kids. What yeah. what's actually happening is so they they don't give a fuck about us at all. They don't believe in anything we believe. All of their Christianity is a total LARP. They're they're yeah. they don't have they're not us, they are genuinely yeah. a different breed of people. They like went, they were totally happy to go into SoundCloud rap. Uh, yeah. you know, like tr trans yeah. dyed hair, a million colors. They were uh, totally happy to go there, but they, they kept going. And then what they realize is there's no one there. There's no yeah. audience. They're, they're like dry firing and no yeah. one cares because again, real culture wanted to shift. Right. You know, it really yeah. wanted to shift. Right. So they're out there making trans movie 7000 and they just no one wants to see it. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares about these these fucking things. The reason why. And so what they realized is what the Dime Square people realize is if we dip ever so slightly into the right. That's the nectar, right? That's where the fucking nectar is. So they they had to do an end around. And that's where we're seeing culture, like all that ultra left culture is kind of like going along the bottom of the horseshoe to meet us yeah. because we have the magic and they just don't have it. So Asher Penn, in order, like, you know, he's cranking out sex magazines, it's, just, it's Vice magazine with, you know, hipster girl naked a million times in order to be anything he knows he has to go right. And so that's why he's going right. Do I really fucking care? No, I don't care. Like it doesn't make, I just don't, I'm not worried about it. Like they, yeah. these guys are going to come, they're going to fly in, they're going to fly out. The only thing yeah. I'm worried about is gen, like the real worries, which is they get in here and dox us and yeah. badmouth <laughs> us and actually like actually harm us, which I'm sure yeah. they would do at the drop of a hat. So huh. it's like, that's what you just have to be careful with. You know, you got, you just never trust them. That's, that's my whole thing. It's like, yeah, come in here. You know, you take our magic by all means. Yeah. I don't really care. There's enough of it to yeah. go around. It's just more like don't ever then expect anything out of them because they're not going to give it. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I mean, I, I sort of, I, I look. I, I, I don't mean to talk about Asher Penn because I actually don't know him that well. So I, this is not about. Yeah, no, he's a not critique a bad of Asher Penn. Right. Yeah, I don't mean to be shitting on Asher. Um, he's just a yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I wonder though, okay, so there there I do think there are people though who can be sort of genuinely converted. So that have been operating in that normie world, not even like lefty degeneracy world. Okay. They're not like 
you know, former Chapo cells. They're just, they were just kind of like floating along with the prevailing culture, trying to do their art or whatever, their writers, their artists, whatever they are, and have been now come to a point where they just can no longer ignore how vacant and uh, sort of sterile that world is. And so they then are like turning around, like they're just kind of wandering in the wilderness yeah. looking for something. Yeah. And they yeah. just stumble onto this place yeah. where they, they hear the noises, they see the fire and they, they come into this place. And, um, you know, so I do think there are, there's opportunity to sort of convert some of these people. I do think, you know, you have to be sort of careful in some way, but yeah, this is something I don't have any answers here or any like big point. It's just something that's <laughs> been on my mind a lot lately because I'm starting to see as the person who's attached directly, you know, the, the sort of quote unquote face of passage, I'm just getting this inbound interest from all these different places, just email after email from people who want to be a part of this or, you know, and people who are sometimes in some cases like well-known established writers, you know, who have won these fancy awards or who are a part of that other world. And I'm wondering exactly what I should do and how uh, to either reach out to them and invite them in here or sort of keep them at arm's length. It's, it's, yeah. it's tricky. I think, you know, there's no harm in inviting them. The, the only harm is, yeah, I mean, so many of them are built um, to never, ever go to that place that you were saying, which is yeah. like on the other side of the hedge, you know, yeah, they, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're whole, they view, this is what I realized about successful people. Successful people view going to the other side of the hedge as their skill. Uh -huh. <laughs> like they, they're like, I know where the hedge is. <laughs> yeah, right, you know what right, I mean? They're right, like, I yeah. can look, I can see it. It's like there. Right. Like, hey, everybody, there's the hedge. Don't go there. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah That's yeah. their whole talent. Like their talent yeah. is not going over the hedge. Whereas like people like me, my whole life, I've been like the whole point is to like know what's on the other side of the hedge. Like, isn't that what our the point is? Like, yes. that's my skill is doing that. So like, these are hedge people, but the fact that they're interested, you know, I mean, at a certain point, you can't really call yourself a writer or an artist if you're not gonna fuck right. with the hedge, right? I mean, it's like, right. then you're just a schmuck. Then you're what Curtis says, which is, you know, in Russia, poet was a state sanctioned title. It was like, yeah. you, you know? Which, yeah, is, which like, is that's where we're at now, now basically. That is right? where we're at. Yeah, you know, yeah. Amanda Gorman. Our, Amanda uh, Gorman, amazing yeah. model slash poet. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> no, nothing is funnier than Amanda Gorman to me. It's, it's sad. Like, oh. I mean, it's, it's I almost feel bad for these people. Uh, not really, but no, it's she's like, probably great. Like, I guarantee, if she was sitting here, she'd yeah. be like probably cool. But like, it's like she's just being used. It's like, yeah. oh. Yeah, like here's my poetry book, and also here's my details for booking. It's just, you it's so bad, it's so cringe and bad. Like I it would, it's, it's embarrassing. But you yeah, know, whatever. She's they, well. They also well. love turning kids into their. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. They love like making the kid their, uh, you know, their yeah. poet or their like thinker, yeah. like Greta, Greta, whatever the fuck. Thunberg, yeah, the future, uh, yeah. yeah. It's they love it's, doing the, it. it's to it's to uh, create this pretense that like this is a move. It's a youth movement. They're obsessed with this idea that this is like a youth movement. The progressivism is like, this is what the kids want, man. This is what the future is. And, uh, even though they're all just these like sclerotic boomers, uh, that that's their, um, 
it's this kind of wish fulfillment, this sort of fantasy fulfillment. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And it's and it's like it also is another way to CYA. You know, it's another longhouse CYA. It's like, well, if this kid, we can't criticize the kid. Yeah, you right, know, if, right, if, right, if, right, if, right. We can't <laughs> criticize the black twenty-two-year-old model yeah, for having bad right. poetry, right? Uh-huh. Like that's not fair. Anyway, all right, we got we got a we're we're over time here, but I, I do want to oh, talk uh, just for the last little bit. What is co- I, I I am very excited about what's coming out from Passage. Yeah. What can we say is coming and and not? Yeah, that, I, I'm actually not quite sure what I'm what I can say. I can say this for sure. So our our next book, our next big book we're working on is a Steve Taylor anthology. Um, that's going to be available for purchase, uh, probably in the late summer winter we're working on all the design features now we want to have all that taken care of we before we put it up for sale we're going to do some really cool stuff with that um we're going to sell a high-end edition that's going to include uh an invitation to some um like exclusive uh events with steve like some dinners and stuff that we're going to do uh by coastal new york la um we have a couple other books in the pipeline um, some people mentioned already in this podcast, zero, uh, HP Lovecraft, uh, delicious tacos. Those are a little further out. Those aren't completed projects yet. So I don't want to make promises that we're not going to be able to keep. So I'll just leave that open-ended for now. Um, we have some other books coming out, uh, from Curtis. We have a book, uh, from Nick land that we're going to be doing here soon. And then, you know, the other thing we're working on are a couple of books in the pipeline from authors that came out of the Passage Prize. Um, so we are looking through a couple of manuscripts right now to decide the, the sort of ordering of that. And then we're getting, like I said, there's this inbound interest from some people who are uh, interested in in being a part of this project and want to publish with us. And so we're we're kind of vetting that right now. Like, do we want to publish a book from this person X, Y, or Z is kind of the decision we're making at this point. But yeah, we got some uh, original fiction, um, some reprints of some interesting stuff. We're going to be doing some live events uh, with our writers. Um, one of which is going to be in a couple weeks. I'm not sure if we're at liberty to talk about that I mean, yet. I don't see why not, but I, yeah. think, I think we're trying to keep it kind of uh, a low profile. But if you're in LA, profile, let yeah. me just put it this way. If yeah. you're in LA and are interested in attending uh, a reading with uh, some of our authors and some people um, affiliated with, with this scene, go ahead and reach out to me or Isaac and we can set you up with some info. Um Let's see what else. And so then the, there's the, the second the, passage prize book, which will oh, be coming right. out in yes. summer. Yeah. What's the title of that going to be? Do we know? Rewilding. Rewilding. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Is there did the sailor anthology? Is there going to be original work in there or is that all press work or what is it? Yeah. It's mostly going to be a curation of the last, you know, 30 years of his writing. Um, you know, one quite like sailor is this seminal figure on our side. And people who are like new to this world often will will like encounter Sailor and they'll see him like in replies on Twitter and stuff. But when you ask like, okay, well, what, what's the thing I should read? Like what, what, who is this guy? Like, what are his ideas that, that what, what's his writing that makes him such a, such an important figure? 
it's hard to think of like where you would even start to send somebody to like get caught up on who yeah. Steve Saylor is. Um, it's so overwhelming. He's got so much stuff. So what we're going to do with this book is basically create that, you know, um, point of entry for Steve Saylor so that if you want to introduce someone to Saylor or you yourself are like, okay, let, let me get caught up on who this guy is. Um, this, well, these books, uh, cause we're going to be doing two of them total, um, are going to be where you start. He will have a, an original essay um, and a bit of original writing, but it's mostly just setting up context. For Which the, is absolutely vital and necessary. Yeah. I mean, I'm one of those people. I don't know where yeah. to start with Steve Saylor at all. So this would be the perfect thing for yeah. me because I need yeah. like some, yeah, you need some thread. It's, yeah. you know, I'm a massive Bukowski fan and right. actually Bukowski's like this too. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Like it, the worst thing you could ever do with Bukowski is start with reading, you know, whatever his not, I don't even remember what his famous, most famous novel is, but people all say, start with like his most famous yeah. novel. That's the worst way you could read Bukowski. Somebody did an anthology of Bukowski called run with the hunted uh-huh. where they did exactly this. They like took his best stuff and like put it in kind of like a chronological order and yeah. that's how you get into Bukowski because you need somebody to like sort through it for you, which is perfect for Sailor. I, yeah. So I'm super excited about that. It's awesome. Do you yeah. have a title? Noticing. No, no. Yeah. Perfect. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. That's noticing. Be so good, dude. Yeah. That's so, um, so I'm really excited about that. And we're going to do a bunch of events with Steve and uh, we we're going to take him kind of like around the country take him to some big cities and and do a bunch of readings. And I think, you know, with Steve, he's one of these figures who everybody reads. Everybody on the New York Times editorial board reads Steve Saylor, um, you know, Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein, like whether they're libs or conservatives, everybody at National Review, everybody reads Steve Saylor. Everybody knows what he's saying and doing and have for decades, okay? He's been a major, major voice on the right, but he doesn't get nearly the credit that he deserves because often what he says is that next step beyond the hedge. And so you're not allowed to acknowledge that you're taking ideas from outside the Overton window, from the other side of the hedgerow. So Saylor has been unfairly maligned uh, for the large part of his career because he has some enemies who don't want people reading him because his insights are that sort of powerful. And so what we, but what we think we can do with this book and one big project that we're going to work on is um, sort of mainstreaming Steve, getting him out there, getting him on news programs. And, you know, we don't have time to get into it now, but this is one thing you lose when you lose a guy like Tucker Carlson and his audience at Fox is you lose the ability for, someone to get that kind of mainstream platform who would otherwise not have the opportunity to sort of speak uh, to the, um, to the inhabitants of the longhouse. Totally. But I mean, look, I think that that's, it's in, I think that's actually an opportunity because good, you know, make it so that every single thing on TV is, yeah. It's just propaganda. People are going right. to obviously then all that means is there's going to be another 10 million Substack subscribers yeah. tomorrow because, you know, they're yeah. going to need to see find shit somewhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Cool, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming on. And um. yeah, obviously we'll talk more soon. Yeah, this was great. We didn't get to like really much of what we had in no, store, right. but it's better that way. We'll do more later. Are you going to edit this? 
No. Later on? Okay. All right. You got to edit <laughs> I, out the I might cut out the one little part of you. But anyway, let's yeah. let the people off talk. All right. Bye. All right.